Hello listeners and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. Today I'm very happy to be recording this episode because one of the people who first taught me to use a cane is our guest today and I'm really excited to give you a deeper understanding of what it's like to learn to use a cane because I've talked about it a bit from my perspective but today you get to hear a little bit about what it's like to try and teach someone like me to move around safely. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961 to 2020. Welcome to Blind Insights. I'm joined today by someone who got here safely, David Olney. I got here safely by deliberately deciding to be safe. (laughs) We're also joined by our mobility god, Rolly Stewart. Thank you for joining us, Rolly. Not barely a god, but yes, welcome. (laughs) Okay, listeners, I'll explain that. It's because I just made a joke saying that as I was thinking about walking down here quickly to not be late, the voice of Rolly Stewart pops into my head, only go as fast as you can go safely. And guess what? still pops into my head at 49. It's a very good voice to have on tap. Makes me sound old if you're 49. Well, that's what we were trying to work out the first day we had a coffee, wasn't it? Mm. Is hang on, I was trying to work out how young you must have been when you taught me. Because you had gravitas, even as a very young teacher. Mm. And that's something most young teachers do not have. I don't think, you sure you're 49? I'm 49. Okay. And he won't admit how old he is. No, no, I'm 63 next month. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. You were literally, when you first taught me, only 24. Yeah. And that's amazing because <laughs> you spoke with such seriousness as opposed to authority. No, you spoke with seriousness and authority rather than from sort of an authoritarian, I'm a teacher, listen. Oh, yeah. Yours was, no, listen, because this is important because you don't want to die. <laughs> And he never needed to say it, but the implication was there. Oh, well. I, haven't, I haven't lost anyone yet. <laughs> that could be a T-shirt <laughs> for mobility instructors. Yes, yeah. So we should probably start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You were a PE teacher as you were going through Teachers College, if I remember correctly? Uh, yeah. Um, I trained as a, well, a primary teacher and my major was in human movement. So it was all, you know, sports-based and teaching PE to kids. So when and how did the idea of doing the additional training to be a mobility instructor kick in? I'm a bit of a a fatalist, so I kind of think, you know, one door opens and another one shuts, sometimes for a reason and you can't perhaps see it at the time. But um, I was at the the vintage of that not everybody out of Teachers College got offered a job at that stage. Probably the year before, virtually everyone got picked up um, with permanent jobs. But when I came out, only a handful of people got permanent jobs. Um, and there was then a dribble of people getting offered contracts. So when I came out, I, I didn't get offered a position instantly. Um, so I got a job at Townsend House. Um, working on an independent living program for vision-impaired teenagers. So I spent a year there working on that. So that was about sort of devising a program, I suppose, of making kids independent in looking after themselves and cooking and cleaning and doing all those sorts of things. But at that stage, probably what I picked up 
from my perspective was that the key skill that they needed to be able to have to be fully independent was to be independent in their mobility to better safely get from A to B and hopefully get back again um, because uh, it might be a poor analogy if let's just say that you know, you're a lawyer and you're a blind lawyer and you're you know, doing wonderful work but you can't get yourself to the toilet you've got to ask your secretary to do that you know, I, th- I think, yeah, that... It adversely that, affects credibility. Yeah, I, think it, yeah. I think it devalues you up to yeah. a point. So basically watching that thing and then having to go away and train for how long? Because I didn't meet you until you were teaching mobility. Yep. So when you were working in the cottages, working out how to help people to be more independent, you were in that sort of alternate universe of the kids who were coming down from the bush and staying in the accommodation no, during the week? No, or? no, they, they brought... Uh, it was a program funded by Townsend House who have now gone on to obviously to become Can Do. Um, so there were city-based kids in there as well that were, were funded to go in there for the 12 months or part of the 12 months. Most of them were there for the whole year to develop these skills. Okay. So anyway, I got interested in the, in the course and Oren who had taught you Oren Newby. Now, Oren was an American, um, and I think he was the first O&M instructor placed in a school in Australia. Wow. So I was remarkably lucky to end up somewhere that got you know, someone in situ. So when you needed to learn, they were literally three rooms down. Okay. And look, I suppose we need to understand uh, orientation mobility is a relatively young profession. It grew out of the Second World War. Mm. So we can talk about that a bit later. But um, So Oren was the first one who'd been trained in the States, came out and was placed in a school. Uh, so in terms of connecting and, you know, watching kids come backwards and forwards because they'd go to school in the day and then travel back to the cottage. We were virtually on the same very large block of land, but there were pathways. Um, I got interested in orientation and mobility, and at that stage, Guide Dogs Association were pretty much the only agency that were doing adult uh, orientation and mobility. So they ran a... um, like a a sponsored course so they paid you a stipend to study for 12 months and then at the end you were kind of like bonded to them so then I applied to get on the O&M course um, and I was lucky enough to get on Um, so I spent then spent 12 months in Melbourne Uh, so at that stage what the O&M course was pretty much lectures every day um, till lunchtime and then in the afternoon we did practical um, so we were blindfolded and I would teach my partner and then he would teach me. Um, so we, I suppose the good part about that is we learnt the skills that we then impart. We learnt what the frustrations were. We learnt what worked, what didn't work. Um, yeah, we learnt what it was like to get lost. We learnt what it was like to do what we call do a recovery. Um, yeah. We worked in suburbs that we'd never seen. So we put the blindfold on in the bus, drive there, and then were orientated to that. So, yeah, we, we did universities. We did city travel. We did multiple forms of public transport. We did road crossings. Um, so, yeah, basically at the end we could do everything that we could teach, which um, – and. It's interesting that what's happened since then is the issue with an O&M course is how many hours of practicum you do. Um, And, of course, if I'm the employer, I want the course to be short um, and probably universities want to make it relatively short too. So the amount of practicum has been cut back over the years. Um, But 
I actually think the practicum was really important because it gave me the confidence to when I was working with a David Olney or a somebody else that what I was teaching worked. So let's assume over that year, say 45 weeks, you know, two hours a day of five days a week, that's a lot of hours. Mm. Yeah, and then you're watching the person you're working with the rest of the time and getting ideas on how you would provide someone with the data they need to help them learn to do it. Yeah, the other thing, I think there was 12 of us on the course, um, so we didn't always work with the same partner. Um, so we worked with people of different size, different personalities, males, females. Um, two of the people on the course were already guide dog instructors, um, so they were again, then getting the dual qualification, so they had some experience. So, yeah, it was, it was really interesting. Um, and at that stage, um, it was royal guide dogs, um, and so a lot of clients came from all around the country at, to Melbourne and stayed in the residence. Um, and so we had lots of access to meeting uh, blind people from of all ages um, from all around the country that of different experiences that were in there for training, whether it to be to get a guide dog or to do long cane training. So the wonderful thing with that is not just exposure to each other, but everyone from every walk of life having just lost their sight recently having lost their sight a decade earlier having you know lost their sight you know to some degree had some sight and then lost more so every variation so an incredible one year way to get total immersion into an area no of study it was fantastic and i suppose i was lucky because i'd had 12 months before that of living with vision impaired kids so I had kids there that were using canes that were totally blind I had other kids that were low vision um, so I, ha I had had a reasonable background beforehand so that was handy. So you get through that year and the deal was immediately to go back to Townsend? No, 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 no. I was sponsored by Guide Dogs to do the course. Okay. Um, so um, and um, you didn't know where guide dogs were going to so place you. they could have you. put you anywhere. It was that Oren went back to America for a year or something, didn't he? Uh, yeah, so I, I came back to um, Adelaide. I was lucky enough to get posted back to Adelaide, so that was that was a good thing. Um, well, I thought it was a good thing at the time. Um, and um, I continued to work. For Education Department of South Australia, you need to be qualified in orientation and mobility and a qualified teacher. So Oren at that stage wanted to take long service leave and he was going back to the States. I was the only person in the state that was... Had the dual qualification. Yeah. So they contacted Guide Dogs and basically borrowed me for a term. Okay. So was it only a term? No, I did a term. And then I went back to guide dogs right. um, and I decided that I actually wanted to, to go back to Townsend School, not Townsend House, back to Townsend School where um, you, you had been a student. Um, so then I left guide dogs and, and I worked back at the school then for another two and a half years. Okay. Listeners, to put this in context, like Oren Newby is this sweet, laid-back American dude who is the perfect person to teach you your initial cane skills because he's so relaxed. And, you know, for me at least, that helped keep me really calm. But all of a sudden one day, you know, Oren is gone and there's this new person called Mr. Stewart. <laughs> and Mr. Stewart sounds very serious. But it also sounds like even to me as a 9 or 10-year-old at the time that he seriously knows his shit. And it's very easy to listen to what he says because it's totally clear, it's focused, and you can implement it instantly. 
So where I harp on it, you lot as an audience all the time about process and just learn something and repeat until it gets better and go through that cycle of build competence to build confidence and with confidence, extend your competence. Rolly is probably the first person outside of my grandmother and my uncle who sort of took this into the big world rather than, you know, sort of the family farm and quiet life at home. And the fact that probably means I only had something like 10 or 12 lessons with you at most in that term, that it stuck with me forever is pretty remarkable and I think absolutely awesome and I will be grateful forever. It's frightening. Um, (laughs) Probably the major piece of work that I remember with you was when we orientated you to high school. Oh, yeah, that was... You know, that was loads of fun because I was was equally scared and excited. Mm. And again, because you were the voice of calm reason, it was like, well, okay, I'm equally scared and I'm equally excited and now someone's giving me precisely the things I can implement, which was the thing that tipped it from 50-50 to, you know, 55 positive, 45, I'm terrified. Yeah, well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I suppose it's not about teaching you, but I remember you was fairly quiet and reserved at that stage so um yeah and it would have been nerve-wracking to be in that school with that taparoo high with that the other kids that were there and the size of the campus completely different from where you'd been so it was it was a challenge those those schools are a challenge yeah and they still are because of the level of prep it was only a couple of weeks before the physical environment was no problem and that was a testament to you know if your initial uh, well, orientation of a place is good enough and you get that skeletal map in, you can then hang everything off that skeletal map. Like really, you know, years later, so okay, that would have been, you know, first year of high school. So we would have been doing that at the end of 83 to get ready for 84 would be my guess. Mm. So Adelaide Uni, it would have been start of 91 that I started university mm. and had to do the same thing. And unfortunately, I can't remember who I did it with from Guide Dogs. Mm. But, you know, Basically, I said, all right, what are we going to use as the point to be the centre of the skeleton to base everything off with the mapping? Oh, Barsmith Circle, right. Well, let's just pick a different direction each hour and over four hours build up a map of four different directions from the Barsmith Circle. Mm. So again, all that same logic we employed at Taparoo got employed at the university. And that map, it was amazing today. You know, I had a class today before I walked down to record with Rolly and I haven't had to walk from the Schutz building through the Hartley building out to Kintore Avenue probably for 10 years and they've moved enough walls and put up enough glass partitions that was like, hang on, I know there's a Hartley building out there somewhere. Yeah. And it was really interesting having to go, well, all right, just keep heading in the general direction, remember what you do if you have to backtrack and keep applying you know, small incremental processes on top of each other. I, I think the, the key part, one of the key parts in orientation mobility is to keep you calm. Yeah. Once you've lost it, it's pretty hard to recover. Yeah, like today, I didn't want to be late, but that would be never something to lose calm over. Late's late. That's the point of mobile phones. It's also the same with driving. You know, I've got a few kids, they teach kids how to drive. It's far better to be five minutes late and get there alive than than not. I'm very grateful for the work I've done training military personnel that I've learnt that on time is 10 minutes early. So I've always aimed to be 15 minutes early because if something goes wrong or is weird, fixing it slowly and carefully is normally going to consume at least 10 minutes. Mm. 
So if I aim to be 15 minutes early, then I'll at least still be five minutes early. And if I'm late, I've got such a good story for why I'm late. <laughs> I will be forgiven. Who could be angry with you, David? I don't know. I'm sure some people can. Mm. Different environments, I suppose, are easier or harder to be orientated to. Um, you know, some people kind of think with blind people, you know, we want to get rid of all the bumps and the, you know, the curbs, and you know, it's a bit like being orientated to a billiard table. I'm glad you just brought that up um, because when you and I walked from here back to North Terrace a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. that corner of North Terrace Gawler Place, mm-hmm. where they've taken all the curbs out and reduced it to tactiles mm-hmm. on a corner where you have delivery vans turning off of North Terrace, around that corner at speed mm. to go down Gawler Place to get into the mall. I'm like, and you dum-dums want to make the cars and the people separated only by a tactile? Mm. That's pretty dumb. Yeah. But if you think about somewhere like Adelaide Uni, where there is that gentle fall from North Terrace down to the river, it's mm. actually not that gentle. No, it's multiple big terraces. Um, th- those sorts of things help. And mm. I remember that I had a vision impaired, and I d- orientated... Lots of people to uni, and it was you know I really enjoyed that environment. So it was I used to enjoy doing those orientation ones. But I one day I had a girl that had a pram. Oh wow! Um, who had to get from North Terrace down to the childcare, which is down on halfway down or right on the you know the river. Yeah. Uh, the, what's that road down there? I've forgotten the name. Victoria of it. Drive. Yeah. Yeah. It's so one. Get, it's one building back from Victoria Drive. It's yeah. a long way down. So then to have to do all of your orientation, but then we had to be, we, we, had, we couldn't do steps. So we had to find all the pathways to get down there yep. for, as if you were in a wheelchair. So, it, yeah, it was, it was interesting. We're going through buildings and using lifts and popping out here. And it was, that was fairly complex. But, yeah, ma- you know, made you think about how to, how to get her and the baby there safely. So. Yeah, and you know, some parts of the university, there's ramps that have been there for decades, mm. like from the level above the Barsmith Library down to it. You can either do 14 steps or a five-corner zigzag. Mm. Now, I periodically do the zigzag with a cane just to see if I can remember how many <laughs> steps before I wipe myself out. Mm. It's just, you know, shits and giggles. You are unique. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm now noisy too. Yeah. I didn't used to be noisy. No. Or you're less noisy. Was I, I? I thought I was quiet. Yeah, no, you were. You no, you were. You're very quiet. No, I I do have some quite good memories about you. Um, David was quite susceptible to light. We call I it, hate light. We call it photophobic or vampirism. So David used to have the best set of wraparound sunglasses you'd ever seen. And I remember we did a camp. I think we went to Woodhouse. And it was at night time and David came out without his without his sunglasses on. And it was this little boy with this quite white stripe <laughs> right, right around his head where his sunglasses had been. So, yeah. And then I think when you went to high school, you'd, you'd moved on to contact lenses. Yeah, very dark contacts, yeah. almost black. Yeah, they're pretty the much out. black contact lenses, yep. which obviously is far better at keeping light out because they sucked right onto yep. you. And it made it look like constantly my eyes were hyperdilated. Yeah. So I remember having to go to the doctor once and the poor doctor like, doesn't know what's going on mm. and shining a light in my eyes and nothing's happening. Mm. How long have you been on drugs? Yeah, and I'm like 12 <laughs> at the time, so the poor dude I think is having a major freak out. <laughs> I want to get your mother in. <laughs> I think she was sitting there laughing, <laughs> going, when's he going to twig? Mm. Why there's you know, blue-grey colour around the edge of this big black pupil? Mm. Well, that's good. You, I th- yeah, that was, um, was it called Arbury Park? I reckon we went to Woodhouse. Okay, I'm glad the you remember one. the name. But that was a really interesting experience because, mm. again, it was a place where a cane was 
or right on the paths between the formal buildings, but you suddenly discover off-road with a cane ain't so good. Mm. It, was a mold, it was an old house. It belongs to Scouts. It's still there. You can still okay. get there. Um, so with your head staircases and bunk beds and all sorts of stuff. So for some kids, it was a, a wonderful experience. So And look, it was, it was fun for us as staff too because that was a great school to work at, uh, really good staff and a lot of camaraderie and, and connection. So it was, it, was, it was good fun. It was one of the best, best places that, I'd, that I ever worked. Yeah, like everyone had to choose to be there. You know, they wanted to be in this area. They wanted to specialise. Mm. And it's like anything, anything that attracts a group of people who want to be there mm. provides the chance for a hot house. Mm. You know, no, no, it was good. And there was some really – that, that school – the school remains. It's changed its name now, South Australian School for the Vision Impaired, and it's moved away from that campus that, it, that you or I mm. were at. Um, but it's the same, same sort of feel, same really dedicated staff, really staff that have a high level of um, – uh, yeah, I suppose dedication to the students and to, to the subject that they're teaching, so they have high skill level and, and mm. empathetic, but yeah, it's good. Well, that was a lovely thing, meeting a couple of them a few weeks ago, you know, going to a meeting with you and oh, yeah. meeting yep. the people who are doing it now, going, the great thing is all that's changed is they have access to more data. Mm. The, the level of commitment reminded me exactly the same, Yeah, yeah. but now thankfully they can get access to more things from all over the world to inform that curiosity and desire to solve problems. Oh, yeah. Uh, look, I, you know, I suppose the life of a vision-impaired student and the support of a vision-impaired student has changed an enormous amount thanks to technology. Yeah. It, it probably makes it even harder in some respects for the teacher because, like, for your profoundly vision-impaired kids who were on Braille, they had a Brailler. That's all they had. Yeah, it was one, one physical device, whereas one, now yeah. it's a briefcase full of technology. Yep. And yeah. every two or three years or five years, a new piece comes out or an upgrade comes out. So you've got to change again. Even for your low vision kids, you know, yeah. learning all the... Uh, if you're using an iPad to take pictures of your screen and then enlarge it, um, all of the swipes and the bits and pieces that yeah. you have to do, the various apps and all that sort of stuff. I mean, a lot of kids, including vision impaired kids, can use those a lot of those things intuitively, but the the braille and the gps aids and all of those sorts of things they they just continue to be added and yeah there's another level of complexity there or well, even from GPS. a teacher's point of view i remember sort of 2010 i think it might have been dennis peck's son hmm. um going and playing with a gps device that was about the size of a loaf of bread yeah and you put it on a shoulder strap and wore it like a bum bag yeah and then stuck one earpiece in hmm. and we walked through adelaide arcade it got completely confused and gave up and crashed hmm. <laughs> And I think at the time it was three thousand dollars. Yeah, um, I was. I've been lucky enough. There are things called international mobility conferences, and they they all move all the way around the world. Um, so I was lucky enough to go. Uh, I've been to a couple of those, but we went to one in New Zealand, and some Americans had come out, some blind Americans had come out to it because in America they have actually have blind... Well, here too, it's only just sort of starting to have blind people as mobility instructors. Isn't there someone at Guide Dogs here with limited vision? Um, Peter? He Yeah, he's actually moved. I think he's moved off to... Uh, he's at Royal Society for okay, the Blind. Okay, but he had fairly limited vision, he did, didn't he? He did. Or does, uh, I should say. Yep. Yeah. Um, and there's uh, uh, certainly another guy that I know that works out of Victoria that's quite limited vision. Anyway, um, we did an exercise where one of the guys actually marketed 
um, and developed one of these GPS aids. So we'd walked every day from this hotel down into where the you know where we were staying down to where the conference was and back backwards and forwards. And so he did this exercise where he had the GPS aid. And he was taking us to things that we'd walked past and never even seen. Yeah. Yeah. So it was yeah it was good. It was fantastic. And I love that technology because often when I'm on consultancy jobs, I'm the one that ends up navigating while someone else drives. Yeah. Because the blind GPS apps just give you that extra bit of detail mm. earlier that I can normally provide a better picture than the normal sighted GPS would. The best part of this one, and I, I must admit, I haven't done hands-on O&M, you know, using those sorts of aids um, for a long time now because of the, my roles changed, but. Um, that aid allowed people to put in a way stop so they could in your street to actually say Epworth building and say what was in it and that was uploaded then to the cloud so the next person that walked along the street got the benefits yeah Yeah. so it was constantly adding to the richness of the information and you know you could even say oh you know the pizza restaurant next door is really good yeah you do the ratings and again the great thing with these apps now is you can go and do your Google ratings while you drop your pin (laughs) So what time did you change sort of career path within education? Uh, After I I left Townsend, so I did two and a half years there and and quite enjoyed that, but a a job came up in TAFE in Brisbane and TAFE at that stage had a uh, unit for vision impaired kids and they had some orientation and mobility as part of that. So I went up and did that for, I don't know, probably... 18 months didn't really didn't really like that how they had that organized um it was probably wasn't what i was expecting and then i rejoined guide dogs um and they sent me to townsville so i looked after all of north queensland so i looked after from Mackay all the way up to the torres strait and wow. out, out to northern territory that was me um and that was fantastic so i did uh, best part of three years there um Came back to Adelaide, worked with guide dogs again. It's funny, I was talking about it today. I um, took some long service leave um, and came back to work and just thought I needed I needed to find something different, uh, a change. So I'd always kept my teacher's registration as my insurance policy, if you like, that gave me another, another out. So then actually joined, went back to the education department and I ended up working at a school that was for kids with multiple disabilities. So they had to have a disability and then they had to have vision or they had to have a disability and hearing loss. So we, it was you know, focused on kids with sensory loss. So I worked there for know, a fair while and then, then now I've come, come into the city. So none of the kids down there, I suppose, in the mobility that we were doing were of a standard where they could have used a GPS aid. Okay. We, we used we used some other bits and pieces to help them um, with their orientation. And then I came into town, so now I work for the education department in head office. So I reckon it must have been while you were still at that school that we ran into each other for the first time, like literally in decades, yeah. that I was going along North Terrace with my cane mm. and I heard a whole bunch of kids mm. and then I heard the grown-up who was wrangling them and <laughs> smiled that it was you yeah. And you just yelled out, nice cane skills, Mr. Olney, and you kept wrangling your kids. Because and it, I waved and off we went. Mm, no, because it's uh, teaching, teaching cane skills is, well, it's not an art, but you know, I'm, I'm a bit particular about the skill part of it and what it looks like and how it operates and where you hold your hand and all of those sorts of things. And then, of course, as you drive along, 
that's it's one thing about being an orientation mobility instructor. I'll see someone walking down the street with a broom handle, and I'll they catch my eye. Um, just anything you know, carrying a long straight thing, and I'm, what? Who's that? What are they? So certainly, you drive along and you see people that you have taught, and you look at their cane technique, and you think, oh gosh, I'm not owning up to that. But so when you when you see a good one, you certainly uh, you rejoice internally and think, oh wow. He's still doing it. So was mine still okay as I was walking along towards you? Uh, I looked at you today coming towards me and there'd be a few things I'd tweak, but yeah, you weren't bad. Yeah. Again, I, I was feeling slightly harried but still moving slow. You weren't bad. No, yeah. no, I, I would have thought you've got, a, you've got a good cane technique. And, you know, it's it's like driving. You get tired. Yeah. You're running late. Yep. You get relaxed. Little uh, bits fall to bits. Yeah. Little bit. And, yeah. now, and then other times we really switched on and it's all, it's all go, go. Yeah. You know, you drive in a, in a new place or, you know, it's like literally there's a lot of parallels with driving. You're orient, you know, you're disorientated or you're in a place that you don't know and the quality of your driving <laughs> drops yeah. away. Whereas what, one of the things that was bugging me was the amount of wind coming down uh, Gawler Place. Mm. So it was carrying sound funny. Mm. And then whatever the building site is on the corner of Gawler Place uh, and Piri, mm. I'm going, I can't hear what cars are doing. I'm only using the lights to cross instead of double-checking the lights and our cars protecting me. Mm. I was only getting half the information. Mm. And that's enough to go, if I don't like this. Yeah. Yeah. And, then, you know, all, the, all those corners are different. And yeah. I think that... Yeah. They're not, no, not, two of the f- no. No, not two of the four are the same. No, and the southeast one, the building's really cut back. Yes. It's a long way back from the, where you walk. Yep. So. Yeah, no, it's yeah, interesting. Hey, hey, look, at least he didn't have to yell at me. Everything's no, I, wouldn't, right. I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> He's also very polite. I'm not paid to yell at you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that could also go on a T-shirt. <laughs> well, what we used to use, you know, you're talking about T-shirts, uh, that used to be bumper stickers for mobility instructors. Um, mobility instructors do it in the street. So that was that was, that was the catch <laughs> cry. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of them. <laughs> so what was it like to go from being a practitioner to being in the policy mm. area? Because that... You know, policy always benefits from practitioners knowing what has been done. But also then there's that tension of trying to work out what's possible with the resources available. Has it been both equally rewarding and stressful being more in the policy side? Not not stressful per se. Uh, Look, I think um, in South Australia, we're the the last state that has a specialist school for vision impaired Mm. students. Um, All the other other states have abandoned that. Um, So I am... Obviously, because of the history that I've talked about, I'm a strong advocate for that. So I would like to see that the school survive. Um, they're being challenged by um, small numbers. Not that there's less vision impaired kids, but I suppose a lot of parents favour sending their offspring to their local school with the view of hopefully making friends with local kids and you know being normal and going to school with their, with their siblings, etc., so what the school is very good at is doing what they call dual enrolments. So you might spend three days in your local school and be able to spend two days in the specialist school. And then the other part of their work is the statewide support service. So they support 240-odd kids dotted around the state that are severely vision impaired but are in mainstream sites. Mm. So the challenge for us at the moment, I suppose, is to have enough resources to support all of those kids in the mainstream. So if we're talking about electronic braille aids and iPads and 
um, you know, just even teacher time. Mm. Um, that's a challenge in terms of resourcing. And then the other challenge, of course, is to keep the school open and keep that viable. And next year, we're moving um, year sevens to high school. Is this because we're getting sort of middle school overall as a South Australian thing? No, most of the other states in Australia have done that with the view of six primary and six secondary okay. and believe mm-hmm. that it's actually better for kids to be in that, the year seven kids to be in that high school environment. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can then set up a primary and middle and a upper okay. and you know, senior school if that's the way you want to do that. But of course, what happens in the first year is we move the year sevens to high school, but we also move the year sixes because the year sixes next year would be a year seven. So they'll lose a double cohort of students in the first year. Oh, so it suddenly looks very little for a while. Yeah, so you they'll use, I think they might lose 13 or 14 kids. In, and for a small school, that's a lot of kids. That's mm-hmm. what I was just trying to work out. How little would Townsend have been when I was there? Seven classrooms of about nine of us per class would have been the biggest class. We can't have been more than 65. Oh, you wouldn't, I don't think it would have been that big. That's, that's my biggest guess possible, and I would say less. Oh, I would have thought you would have been closer to 40, 45 kids. Okay. Because um, literally you did know everyone's voice yeah, yeah. and everyone's story yep. and what everyone was about yep. simply because there were so few of us. Yeah. <laughs> well, again, you talk about people being mainstreamed. Yeah. What I remember most obviously is the people who'd had stints out in the mainstream world mm. and had struggled coming in and being these incredibly disruptive forces mm. because they'd come from an environment where they were struggling and suddenly they had status and they had an advantage. Yeah, um, you know, there's there's a couple of ways even now of looking at how those some a lot of kids, their parents and the education system wants to give them a go mm. in the mainstream, and then if things aren't working or their vision deteriorates, that's the other one. Mm. Then they'll come to the specialist school. The specialist school to me is the the place where they'll learn their skills mm. to develop all of their specialist skills that they're going to need in education and then university, et cetera, et cetera, and work life. So the, the role of that school to me is really important to be able to give those kids those the mm. skills that they're going to need. And the example you're giving there, say three days in their local school and two days of specialist school. So, you know, I remember, again, I really ended up doing grade seven twice because the first time I did it a year early. Like what should have been my grade six, I mm. was the only one that got moved up from the group I'd been with since I started to people I'd never been in a class with who were all a year or two years older than me. Mm. So in effect, I did you know, grade seven and grade six yeah. and then had to do it again, which was fairly profoundly boring. Um, but the you have one, to keep doing it until you get it right. Well, I, I'd done it right <laughs> as a grade six. Mm. But the one real advantage of the rerun was Paddy Ayres arrived mm. from Dover as a high school teacher, very much with the focus of like you and Oren and later Dennis's mobility instructors going, look, I'm here to give you the specialist skills so that you can function in every other environment but here successfully. And I remember that in the same way there was culture shock for people going from Oren to you. And I found it hysterical at lunch when you started teaching mobility that I was the only one that was having fun. Everyone else was having a moderate freak out. And it was much the same when Paddy Ayres arrived and suddenly said, all right, you know, this needs to be a, a, you know, a preparatory run for high school. Mm. No, and look, some people probably thought that, uh, maybe me, but probably thought that Paddy was being mean to some of the kids um, because the issue was if you didn't know how to pack your bag, probably she wasn't going to pack it for you. 
No. So if that meant that you were going to carry around 15 kilos of books every day because you couldn't be organised enough to only take the books that you need for the next lesson, mm. that was your problem. Yep. So she would explain it to you. She would give you all the skills, show you where to put it. Yep. But if at the end of the day you were disorganised and you had to carry everything and a brailler and a cane yep. and, and get from one end of the school to the other, um, that was your problem. Yep. And it was fascinating being in the environment going, hang on, I'm repeating much the same material here. Hmm. That's really boring. And I'm putting in no effort because I'm bored out of my mind. Hmm. But all these skills of how to succeed are adding on to everything from Oren and you. So I remember the weird combination in what was my proper grade seven of going half, I am so insanely bored. Mm. And the other half is useful skill for next year. Mm. And then the huge debate at the end of grade seven to, well, can I go to a mainstream, mainstream school with very little support? And I was all for it because, you know, I was sick of travelling. I wanted to only be three train stations and 10 minutes away and to be able to sleep in until 7.45, which is what I ended up with and which made me deliriously happy. Congenital laziness, I think it's called. No, well, what it was called was having to be on a bus at 7.30am to roll into the school at a minute to nine Yeah. and then get home at five mm. as an 11-year-old going, this is crap. Yeah, and look, it, that's one of the issues that we've got still, I suppose, is... Um, Sasby's on the southern side of the city. It's a long so, haul from one side of the so city. So, yeah, if you lived in Gawler, or, and yeah. that's where the, a lot of the expansion is now. So if you live in Gawler or Hewitt or somewhere further out, yeah. um, to get yourself down to Sasby is, is a big ask. Mm. So when we first started and we, we did our first high school unit, which was, as you said, Dover High School, which then moved on to be, well, it's now Seaview High School, because Dover's no longer there, I don't think. Mm. Um we only had a unit, a high school unit in the south mm. and there were kids that were coming from the north and that's where they had to go to high school. Now we've got a high school unit out north at a place called Charles Campbell College which is an education department site and again staffed with specialist staff because what we do, it's sort of like a cluster school so rather than have 10 kids in 10 local schools um, trying to service all of those, we put them all in one school with the specialist equipment a couple of specialist teachers, it becomes a cluster score, a, a unit. So they're still mainstream, mm. but if you like, they can come back it's to home. the best home. of both worlds. It's they a bit like what you're describing from yep. primary school. They can come back yeah. to home base and you know get get all the, the specialist support that they need. So that used to be what, Campbelltown High? Could have been, yeah. Yeah, I, could, I would assume it's that. Yeah, yeah. It, and this is a great model, this sort of integrated model. Yeah. Sort of the best of both worlds, it seems to me, having been through the opposite of going to the very small primary school to the... Yeah, end of grade seven, mm. and then you know, dropped into Taparu where they introduced a dress code to get people out of gang colours. <laughs> it was interesting. Mm. It, yeah, yeah. Look, it it is a challenge. I think the other challenge, I suppose, is for you know, if you're the sole vision impaired kid in a site, to make a connection with your peers, mm. and you know, there's some valuable learning that you can have from having contact with other people that are in similar situations, you know, yeah. even if it's just emotional support. Yeah, and see, that's the thing. It it forces you immediately to go, what do I have in common with these people as opposed to what makes me different? Mm. You have to change your focus. But again, 100% of everything is unhealthy. Mm. You know, a little bit more mixed would have been a nice thing, but again, there was no other kid that wanted to go to Taparu because he lived three stations away. So and the challenge, the challenge for us as a system... And when I say the system that supports those kids, it's not just the education department system. Now we've got 
you know, the other agencies and ND, all the NDIS service providers is how to meet the needs of that clientele yeah. and, you know, give them opportunity to meet with other kids. And there's a lot more sporting stuff now, I think. And that's great because I remember just that was just beginning to happen. Mm. But then I was going to be so far away at Taparoo, so that was sort of the end of doing any kind of organised sport yeah. because there was nothing like it. All right, I swam, you know, at sort of club level for a couple of years. But going up and down a pool when you can't sort of look at what other people are doing is <laughs> profoundly mm. dull. Mm. You can't even see the dark black line. Yeah. No. And you have someone has to yell so you don't smash your head open. Mm. Which, again, if people are nearly asleep, you stop swimming so fast. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, well, that's self-defeating. Mm. I, I imagine that teachers, educators have to do other kinds of training before they get into uh, educating uh, young people with, with disabilities. Um, I, I, I assume that that's the case. Yeah, certainly if we talk about vision impairment and and hearing Mm. loss, the department actually pays for people to study a master's course. So that's we run scholarships for that. They they still do the the learning in their own time, but we will pay all of their course fees. Um, And that's you know talk vision impairment. I was talking at that. That that's always been the case. Not so much in terms of the scholarships, but that teachers who wanted to work there had to have gone and got an additional mm. qualification. So my additional qualification was my orientation and mobility, mm. which is more than just how to use your cane. We learned about vision impairment. We learned about hearing. We learned about gait. We learned about neurology, uh, you know, neuroscience, those sorts of things, and how people are affected yeah. by head injuries and all sorts of things. I try um, not to get them. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting that at that stage, Guide Dogs was across the road from a hospital called Royal Talbot that did a lot of um, rehabilitation for people that were vision impaired. And some people from Royal Talbot came across the road and said, look, we've got some people that have had strokes and head injuries that their vision's not good. Um, and it started a connection then between those two organisations. So it grew out of that where we used to do a lot of instruction for people that had lost vision as a result of strokes and head injuries. And there's actually a lot of kids that lose vision as a result of you know birthing or yeah, other, accidents other accidents that may come along. So there's a whole new area well not new but it's ever growing area that looks for people with neurological vision impairment or cortical vision impairment and then the americans have now moved on to actually no it's not i think it might be the english have moved on to using the term cerebral because what they're saying, well, if we talk about a cortex, we're talking about all your vision losses in that one cortex. Yep. And we now know that your whole brain is involved in processing information that comes in visually. So that's where they use the term cerebral and it talks about the whole brain. Um, so there's people that have had strokes, head injuries, tumours, cancers, all those sorts of things, that their problem's not in their eye, it's in their brain. Mm. So a, a friend of mine had a stroke a couple of years ago yep. and he had the experience of having his sort of mobility assessment mm. on how's he going with the damage it did to his eyes. Mm. And I remember him calling me after and going, David, it was really interesting when you've described what it's like to go and do a mobility lesson to learn a new place. Mm. I just kind of had that experience at, you know, 76. Yeah. So, yeah, when I was at Guide Dogs, we started that that sort of stuff. But, yes, no, to go back to your your original question, yeah, they have to have a lot of other training. Um, and that that's the ideal because we're not talking about sighted well we're not talking about sighted kids who can't see mm. Mm. You know, they're, they're different they develop differently yeah. their thought patterns are different um, blind people walk different 
they have a different gait pattern and yep yep and i'm still undoing the consequences of that in yoga (laughs) every day for how locked up my upper back is Mm. to always be under control with the cane Mm. yeah and stress and you know all of those sorts of things impact on you as well so because you know it obviously takes a significant amount of resources to give people those uh, scholarships to go and do that training and then you've got your specific sites for visually impaired people there are significant resources for the education department which classically is underfunded Um, I I suppose in your position do you find a lot of your work is uh, revolves around trying to just secure enough resources to run like or is is it sort of is there a different approach to disabilities and visually impaired uh, education that where it's just sort of they automatically fund it it's not a not a problem uh, our, our department here is actually quite uh, not that's not meant to be doing an advertisement but if you're listening minister <laughs> um our department is actually quite innovative in how we've been funding kids with vision impairment probably since 2019, or all kids with disability, really. Great. What used to happen was a kid, like let's say David, enrolls at a school. The school, I don't know if you understand, the schools are funded. The schools get so much per head for how many students. You know, if you've got 100 kids, as compared to 1,000 kids. And then they were getting an extra bucket of money for this kid with disability. The David bucket. Yeah, one word for it. (laughs) The bucket. Now we've we've moved that, um, and that was automatic, and that was based on the kid's diagnosis, and there was no checks and balances in terms of what the school did with it. You know, they could buy a coffee machine or wow. you know, yeah. carpet the staff room or buy new furniture, but they didn't. But you know, there was no checks and balances right. about what are you doing with this money. So now we've moved to a new system which is based on more function. Mm. Um, so potentially. You know, for instance, a newly blinded student would get more money to d- help them to develop their skills and do all the things that they needed as compared to someone who'd maybe, you know, had already developed skills and was coasting along. Well, not coasting, but you know what I mean. Building up skills gradually because the core competencies were there. Mm. I wish I'd said it that like that. That's why I get paid the right words. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, we actually are providing more funding now for kids with disability than we've ever ever Amazing. provided yeah um yeah it's good and that's actually the position i've moved into now i'm working in that a part of that team great but look the scholarships are relatively cheap those courses are supported by the commonwealth so they're relatively oh, cheap okay um and in fact they i reckon since last year to this year the cost of those subjects is halved mm. um so that's really good so that the, those costs are not much but it's considering that a teacher has to work and do the stud, do the master. Mm. So if you did one subject a semester, that's so got, a very takes long you, commitment. Yeah, so that's four years. Yeah. Mm. Um, and you know you have to study and do the, all that in your own time. So the issue is just keeping up with the number of staff mm. to you know deal with retirements and people deciding I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. I want to go and do something else. Do you have a higher turnover? I, I mean, it probably those specialist teachers put in. Or more is required of them, let's say, even than a normal teacher? Oh, it's different. It's different. It, it's it's different. I mean, if you're in a high school and you're marking multiple papers... Um, Everyone's yeah. exhausted. It's just how you get exhausted. Well, yes, yes, yes. It's, it's, yes. it's yeah. different. Uh, I, I wouldn't say they work hard. No, so I don't... I'd, no, no, <laughs> no. But, no, yeah. it's a fair question. Yeah. Look, people need to find out about it. Mm. You know, the idea of teaching vision impaired have to be exposed to that maybe yeah. um, and then have to commit themselves to doing the study. Mm. 
Um, so yeah, look, generally in, in teachers of the vision impaired, and I'd say in teachers of for kids with hearing loss, we don't have enough staff. Right. You know, we we we're not keeping up, if you mm-hmm. like. And um, and we, having said that, there's not a huge turnover in those sites because people have got that specialist skill because they, obviously they've decided that's something I want to do. Mm. And then they get in there and, yeah, they further develop their skills. Look, it, it can also be, to, in some respects, uh, you paint yourself into a corner. You know, you, the more specialised you get, no, you can't, you can't then skill. decide, oh, well, I want yeah. to go to Adelaide High and teach geography. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. yep. yep. you've okay. spent 10 years mm. going down one very narrow path. So it's why it's so important that people understand that if it's something they wanted to do, you know, there is a definable path. Become a teacher, do the extra qualification. Yeah. You don't have to end a teacher like Rowley. You can go down these other paths and eventually be in the position to affect the policy in the implementation mm. of the mm. policy, mm. which makes it better for everyone. Mm. Oh, look, yeah. It's, I've enjoyed it and I've moved into this other position now, not because I wasn't enjoying the vision thing. It was just I needed something else to do. Yeah, but we all at different times in our life just need to do a new thing mm. because what we're doing is just become repetitive mm. and things with so much meaning don't feel right when they become too repetitive mm. I, w- I would say it's part of my dna now i i can't get it out so yeah I, you know i enjoy it and i you know as i said i drive down the street and see someone with a broom handling what are they doing yeah. oh no it's not okay so you need like you, you almost need to have that compulsion when you start because it becomes an obsession it's like an interesting com- point we've taken out of a conversation recently from looking at careers yeah yeah you need to feel compelled to start mm. Mm. and compulsion's healthier than obsession so if possible stay compelled <laughs> no but it, but you know if it becomes yeah. a part of your dna no. where you're looking down the yeah. street and mm. look it's at like it. me i can't help but teach people yeah even if now the preferred ways even if they don't want to be taught <laughs> well unfortunately that's always one third of every class in oh, yeah. every class from mm. the start of school to the end of university mm. look i think what what i when you know, i said there was 12 of us that started off with the o&m course what what we found, not necessarily out of that course, because I thought we had a really good year of students, but a lot of them went out to work and burnt really brightly you know, for three, four, five years and mm. kind of burnt themselves out. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, just, yeah, couldn't pace themselves. So, because, you know, you're, it's, it can be an emotional um, investment in it as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah, because you're dealing with people who, as you're learning as a little kid, there's days where you feel really emotionally frayed. Mm. And you know you rely on these people who are teaching you to not just be very technically capable, but they need to be sort of very compassionate too so mm. that you can calm back down. Almost like emotionally available almost. Yeah, yeah. 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 Compassion is, I think, the big thing. Yeah. And, you know, it was this, well, it's not the same, but my experience is when I worked as a masseuse. Mm-hmm. And working with people in lots of physical pain is exhausting mm. because at some level, a little bit of physical pain every day rubs off. Right. And I wonder if a little bit of mm. seeing people constantly being a bit stressed can rub off on you. Mm. It's, diff- it's different teaching adults to kids. I, can I suppose, you know, yeah. if, you, if you think about your experience of being, you know, under the guise of, you know, the education department and, and my access to mobility training over 12 years as compared to someone who has lost their vision later in life or had a car accident or yeah. those sorts of things, the whole uh, learning period squashed down. I'm not going to work with yeah. someone for 12 years. And you're dealing with trauma. Yep. 
you know, they're having to grieve and go through the trauma mm. and deal with the day-to-day shocks on top of the grief and the trauma. Plus their family. Yeah, mm. who are trying to all cope with this new world as well. Yep. You know, changes to employment yeah. if they've been working or, mm. um, you know, they can't drive any longer. Yeah. And for a lot of people, that's a major, a major rock that they've got to get over. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. Part of the reason I made my decision to get my iPhone 5 when I did is I'd found an amazing YouTube channel called How to Be Blind, done by a guy called Mike Malasi. And he was a JTAC in Afghanistan. So mm. he called an airstrike. Mm-hmm. And he was walking with a platoon one day. And the guy in front of him stood in an anti-tank mine. He got vaporised and Mike's eyes got vaporised. So when Mike essentially came round from being thrown metres, he went, oh, I must be in a cloud of dust, dirt, can't see hmm. anything. So, yeah, he had to go from the transition from married, one kid on the ground, second one on the way, a corporal, a JTAC, doing the things he'd dreamed of his whole life. To overnight, all right, that's over. And i got to go home and get my shit back together fast enough to become a dad and a husband and then work out how to function in the not-military world 10 to 15 years earlier than I thought I was going to have to. Mm. And he's the most amazing person because he talked so honestly about that transition mm. and you know, what it was like you know, going through learning to use a cane literally only two months after, you know... <laughs> a major IED explosion in Afghanistan. Absolutely amazing. And that's a wonderful segue, David, because that takes us back to where orientation mobility starts. Precisely. That was sort of why I did it. Oh, rubbish. No, you wanted to get back to don't take, too. Don't you ta- try and take credit for my segue. Um, <laughs> I set it up so it didn't need to be mentioned. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Come on, I finally get to talk there's, back. There's two of us here that know the truth, and you're yep. not one of them. Oh, um, <laughs> Yeah, Second World War, that's that's pretty much where orientation mobility, the, like teaching long cane came out of. There's certainly pictures that go back to Middle Ages and all of that sort of stuff. And when we talk about the, the cane used to have a crook on the top and the theory was that it was taken from a shepherd's crook. Um, and there's certainly pictures of people walking along with even with dog guide, guides and long sticks way, way back um, travelling around. But formalised orientation mobility using the long cane and pretty much many of the techniques that you learnt came out of the Second World War and where you had physically fit young men coming back to veterans rehab hospitals um, and someone had to work out how to get, what are they going to do? How are we going to get them around? Mm. So yeah, so that's... And then here we are. And here we are. Mm. And the last thing we talked about before we started today, and Mm. we can either put it in or not put it in, Mm. is we were talking about the idea of intelligent disobedience. Yeah. Which I think is such an amazing idea in that it's follow the rules until actually you realise you have to break them. And it's how to do that risk assessment very carefully. Yeah. Uh, Okay. The the term, we've probably always used the term intelligent disobedience, but more so for dogs. Yeah. You actually train that into a dog, so the I you know people think that with a a guide dog, what you do is you wake up in the morning and you put on your socks, and your toe pops out the end. So you you get the dog and you say right, David Jones, men's sock department, and the dog gets you there. <laughs> GPS dog, canine <laughs> um, from Doctor Who. Doesn't work like that. Um, the person the person's always in charge. The person is the one that's orientated and the person is the one that's giving the instructions to the dog. 
what the dog if you is if you like is a very clever object uh, avoidance technique so the dog's using its own eyes and not walk it's learnt how to um, not let you walk into things it's called the dog's right shoulder work because you always put the dog on your in your left hand mostly mm. i suppose if you've got two arms um so the dog it's the dog then has to compensate for your width its right shoulder so the dog learns all of that as part of its training and then when you get to a road crossing the person makes the decision not the dog mm. so you say you listen to the traffic you listen to the audio tactiles or whatever's there and then you give the instruction forward intelligence disobedience is if you were saying forward to the dog and the dog can see that it's not safe and the dog will then disobey. Mm. So I think the term that you're talking about is is probably more about intelligence disobedience, not, yeah. I know, I love the Uh, fact that my original discoverer was a book by uh, Ira Chalif where he used the guide dog example to go in organisations. When should people say no to the system? Mm. When should they say no to the hierarchy? Mm. And I just love the fact that he did the transition straight from the dog to humans. Mm. And I just wanted to get your take on it mm. from, you know, being exposed to that world. I look, I, you're good travellers who, you know, good users of orientation mobility skills are, are making all sorts of decisions all of the time. Mm. It's not rote learning. No, because um, that wouldn't work because there's too many variables. Yeah. Yeah. And it... You, you know, you talked about the stress of being all stiff if you're all stiff all the time and you're just having to follow A, B, C, D and then all of a sudden something's wrong. Mm. There's a manhole there or, you know, a Telstra pit or something's going on or a car parked across the driveway. What do you do? Mm. You have to make all those sorts of decisions and and be skilled at being able to do that. Mm. And I don't know if it's about risks, but uh, it was interesting. My, My wife's also an orientation mobility instructor, so... God help our kids if they'd ever been born vision impaired. Um, but we, she, she actually told me about a, a term which I hadn't used before, which is the dignity of risk, about we're actually teaching people how to take risk. Because, you know, travelling as a blind person, there's a risk factor. But mm. there's a risk factor if you, you know, catch the bus. There's a risk factor if you drive. There's a risk factor if you drive a, you know, ride a motorbike. So it's about giving people the skills and the abilities to be able to take risk um, and and know whether that's uh, equatable to still stay safe. It, it's a risk, but I, I know I can get there. And, mm. and you know, if you think about what you do, David, and you know what what I did when we were under blindfold is, you know, when you're making a road crossing, there's an element of risk mm. always. Mm. Mm. And then we add in things like push bikes now that can go up forty and fifty kilometres yeah. an hour, yep. and these stupid scooter things, electric cars. Oh yeah, yeah. The electric car thing, I think, is going to be the ultimate you know horror of they're so quiet and in a loud environment like if they're working on a building electric cars just you're not gonna apparently look i never owned an electric car one of my kids is talking about buying one but i've never owned one or i've driven one at work but i think there is um they have beacons in them and i think you can choose to turn on the sound on or off so yeah um, and i wonder if in the long run another thing we'll run an app on our phone is the ability you know, to be fed that information. Ah, oh, cool. That, that all I, the, I would imagine that wow. yeah, we'll this probably network be told, of like geo yeah, oh. geocoding. I would say that will be the next step. Because you know, when we first had coffee, I was sitting there with my both sunglasses on and got a call from my wife. Mm. And you're like, hang on, what's that bit of technology? Mm. So I can imagine the combination of the Bose and an app that lets me know how many electric cars are coming from what Super direction. Cool. That would be a, a great. Mm. Now, app, you know, uh, producers out there, hint, <laughs> if this goes well, I want my 10%. 
<laughs> we mm. can talk to Nathan about it. That's um, true. <laughs> well, I think that is all the things we talked about talking about and a lot more. So I'd like to say thank you very much, Rolly, for coming along and telling old stories and explaining things I didn't understand when I was 10. <laughs> we only had an hour. I couldn't do them all. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Come on. We'll get there eventually. There can always be volume two. No, no. It was good fun. Thank you. And thank you, Tim, as ever. Uh, anytime. Thank you, Rolly, for uh, giving us some insight into what David was like as a kid. That was extremely fun. <laughs> and I've come out of this only... Nice, I've come out of it really well. Yeah. It's remarkable. <laughs> yeah. Okay, listeners, I'm getting out of here before they start telling the other stories. Talk to you soon. Farewell. Bye. Hello, audience. Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe and share your favourite episodes or leave us a review if you really love us. We'd love to hear from you. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter at Blind Insights or send us a recorded question to the email in the description to feature on an episode. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out.